You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. On this episode of the EdUp Experience, we welcome Dr. Chris Rolke, president of Stetson University. Dr. Rolke is widely recognized as one of the most collaborative leaders in higher education today. His tenure as president at Stetson University began on July 1st, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, stepping into the role and immediately affecting positive change. On this episode, Dr. Rolke talks to us about transparency, trust, and why kindness needs to be as contagious as the virus. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience. Joe Salustio here. This is Elizabeth Liva. And on the line, we have Dr. Chris Rolke, president of Stetson University. Chris, thanks for joining us, and uh, we're honored to have you with us. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I hope that our conversation finds you and your loved ones well uh, during, uh, during a period of global, global public health crisis. Well, thanks, thanks for saying that. And, you know, we, uh, since we started these, this podcast, and it's funny, we were talking the other day, we've released, I don't know what, Liz, 30 episodes now, and we started this in January. So we've been uh, rolling yeah, very rapidly. Uh, so most of everything that we've done has been in the time of COVID-19. So before we get started, we do like to ask our guests always, how are you, uh, Chris? How is your family? Uh, and how's your community? Uh, thank you very, very much for asking. It's a generous question. Uh, my family as well. Um, I am beginning this presidency at Stetson while my family remains in New York. We were uh, first uh, the epicenter in the United States, and Florida, regretfully, is, is quickly becoming uh, similar in that regard. So uh, I arrived in Deland on June 15th, um, began officially as president on July 1st, and I am eager for um, – the climate to change so that my family can join me down here in, uh, in the land. That's, uh, uh, I guess, a sign of the times. Uh, what's crazy. And by the way, where are you from in New York? Um, the last 21 years before, um, um, taking on the presidency at Stetson, uh, Poughkeepsie, New York has been our home, uh, the home of Vassar college, uh, where I served as dean of the college. So the Hudson Valley is, is uh, where I've been the last couple of decades. And, uh, for a little over a month now uh, here in uh, here in Deland, Florida. I, I, you know, I'm from Syracuse originally, and I spent uh, I went to uh, uh, my undergrad at uh, Oneonta, which I think is uh, fairly yes. around that area. Yes, it is. Uh, it um, is. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, can always spot a New Yorker, particularly a, as we say, a downstater. When you're uh, when you live in Syracuse <laughs> like me, there's the downstaters and the upstaters. When they say Florida with an A and call it Florida. So that's how you identify Liz, if you didn't know that. Uh, somebody from New York. I did not know that, but thank you for that little known. <laughs> well, this is a Deans Higher Education University podcast. So I thought that we, I would drop that knowledge on everyone to start. Appreciate but, that. Uh, <laughs> Chris, let's, let's get right into it. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to start this, but I mean, for our audience to understand, uh, Dr. Olke here has taken over uh, a college presidency the uh, 1st of July, if I'm not mistaken. So you're about uh, a couple of weeks in as we record this podcast. During uh, what some would argue would be the toughest time uh, higher education has seen in, in the last 50 years. Um, what the heck are you doing? Uh, what, 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 uh, what motivated you to step up 
and uh, and I say stuff up in the context that there's just been an article that came out recently inside higher ed talking about how you know, the, the uh, there are no college president candidates and they're few and far between because nobody is taking the risk and nobody feels prepared to deal in the role. Uh, what um, uh, you know, why step up and take on this opportunity? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, you know, I feel very grateful about a number of things. First, uh, that the exiting president, Wendy Libby, uh, who served Stetson so well for over a decade, did engage me uh, quite fully uh, back in February when uh, the pandemic really started to, to take root in the United States. So over the last four or five months, I've actually been immersed in the Stetson community in terms of its planning and its preparations. And uh, we sort of joked that we were wonderful dance partners. She was fully respecting the fact that I was the incoming president and I was fully respecting the fact that she was the outgoing president. And I feel so grateful for that experience. I got a chance to meet senior leadership in real time. I uh, got a chance to, to speak with faculty and students and a number of other important constituents of our, of our university. Uh, so I feel very grateful. In, in many ways, uh, the typical kind of uh, learning and listening tour that a new president would do, uh, I was immersed in it quite authentically um, for the last four or five months. Even though I didn't officially take on the role till July 1st, I felt I got to understand uh, a lot about the Stetson community uh, in a time of crisis, and I really liked what I saw. I saw tremendous commitment to the institution. I saw thoughtfulness, kindness, humanity, all the good stuff that you would hope for in a higher education context was certainly true in my initial experiences at Stetson. So although it certainly is not the context that I anticipated uh, coming into, uh, I have a superb team around me, and uh, we're going to do the very best we can to make sure that our students can pursue their their degrees. Th thanks for that. And, uh, you know, kudos to you. And it uh, sounds like uh, Stetson University has, has lucked out uh, with a great president. And, uh, uh, you know, with that said, you, you, you said listening and learning, and I was uh, reviewing the site, and, and it says <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Rolke's uh, accelerated listening and learning tour. <laughs> and I think it, it, says, uh, it says a lot about uh, the times, and in particular, I think any incoming president is going to go through a period of listening and learning to figure out you know, who you have, what the culture is like, um, start to uh, vi visibly identify any issues or the good things that are happening. Uh, but you really had to accelerate that uh, because you're dealing with a set of issues that you would not have been dealing with a year ago or two years ago. So what does the accelerated tour of learning and listening look like compared to a regular tour of listening and learning? Well, what's I think really interesting is that many of these uh, have been virtual connections with our community, uh, and there's been a, a sort of a strange efficiency uh, associated with that. Uh, you know, I'm connecting with very large numbers of our, our community uh, virtually, um, and so in some ways, the tools that we are required to use for this, as you said, accelerated uh, learning and listening tour uh, have enabled me to reach more people than I typically would. Uh, you know, I'm not getting on a plane or in the car to go meet with uh, members of the board. Uh, you know, I'm not traveling to go see regional partners. Uh, we're doing this virtually, and I've been able to, in other words, have a greater volume of input and discussion than typically would have been afforded uh, a president in a, in a more normal period of time. Yeah, and uh, that, that's great. Thank you for that. And Liz, I, you know, I know you've got a lot of questions for for Chris, so I'm going to hand it over to you while I uh, uh, take a break and get my next set of questions ready for him. Uh-oh. 
<laughs> sounds a little bit. <laughs> I had to tune them up a little bit before I get to the heart. Uh, I know, and I thank you for that because um, I think coming from the faculty perspective, and, and it was actually interesting for me to review your background and your study, um, your master's and your doctoral study in the social and philosophical foundations of education. It looks like you've done some extensive research on the faculty element, like on the recruitment right. and retention and um, in terms of how that probably, I'm assuming, informs you know, how a university or college is able to serve the students um, in the best way possible. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you think the faculty role is? And, and I would be, I think, remiss if I didn't throw in a question in terms of we're going through a lot of civil unrest and there's a lot of question about higher education's role. You know, sure. one thing I've, I've observed from my 20 years working in higher education in a decade as a faculty member is I don't really think that higher education is doing enough to ensure that faculty are representative of the students in terms of the percentages, you know, student body ranges and as far as black students and students of color, thinking about anywhere from maybe 15 to even up to 30%, depending on if it's a career college versus a more elite university versus a public. So how do you think the faculty role needs to evolve to meet these challenges? And, and what are some of the suggestions that you would mm -hmm. recommend for, for people that are out there saying, you know what, higher ed really isn't doing enough. What can we do better? to serve the needs of our minority students and how can institutions ensure that their faculty and their leadership are reflective of our students as well? Uh, those, are, those are really terrific questions and they are interconnected. Uh, the first part of your question was about, you know, what do I think is the faculty role and, and, and what role maybe does the president play in terms of nurturing that faculty? And the second is the sort of the demography uh, and the commitment to tackling issues of, of racial injustice uh, which again is another critical, we're really fighting two pandemics at the same time. Uh, one yeah. is COVID-19 and one is the structural racism that we uh, have struggled so mightily to try to overcome. So I thank you for your question. Uh, mm -hmm. First, uh, the faculty uh, are where the rubber hits the road in any institution mm -hmm. of higher education and supporting their work, making sure that they have the tools and the uh, and the wherewithal uh, to to teach effectively, to work effectively with an increasingly diverse demographic of, of our students. Um, I'm coming from a place at Vassar College, which um, over the last decade has engaged in its most dramatic demographic shift in its history, uh, probably second only to the decision in 1969 to go co-educational. And so we diversify both our faculty and our student body quite rapidly and also at a time when we also were in a difficult financial uh, context with the Great Recession. So that we, we learned a tremendous amount through that process because while we were going through these ambitious goals to both diversify our student body and our faculty and to make our community more inclusive, we had fewer resources with which to do that uh, because mm -hmm. of the Great Recession. So, um, you know, I do think a lot of times this is about resources. We've got to make sure that we recruit and retain the very best faculty of color uh, in a variety of disciplines. I also think it's important in a community, uh, higher education community, that we know that the job of uh, diversity and inclusion is not 
uh, in the form of one or two or three or four people that have those roles in their title. <laughs> uh, this has to be a community effort, a full community effort. Everyone at the university needs to be quote unquote a diversity officer, an inclusion officer, uh, because things occur on our campuses that are hurtful, that are painful, and frankly are barriers to uh, our students learning uh, if they have to confront uh, the isms uh, that are so present um, in, our, in our society. I think this is a critical moment for higher education to embrace this challenge, uh, given what's transpired in the nation uh, with police uh, uh, brutality and the like. Uh, and I think that there's no better place to be, frankly, than in an institution of higher education where we can have the difficult conversations, have the opportunity to m try to meet the needs of particular communities, to provide ample opportunities for multicultural exchange, and also with the goal of engaged pluralism. So that's kind of the way I think about uh, our challenge in diversity, meeting the needs of particular communities, providing ample opportunities for multicultural exchange with the hope that we can move ourselves forward into an engaged and pluralistic society. For sure. And as you come into your presidency at Stetson, um, you know, in South Florida, and we have a very diverse, um, especially in South Florida and even in Central Florida, and I went to school in North Florida. It's just the state is just 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 so many different pockets and so many different types of student. What are some of your thoughts about the campus there in the land? How will you promote that diversity Great. and inclusivity? What are some of the um, initiatives or what are some of the, your initial thoughts as you embark on making sure that the students do feel that sense of community there? Certainly. Uh, you're correct and that we're in a state and I think even in Central Florida, uh, the, the demographics are quite fascinating and frankly it was one of the things that appealed to me about coming mm. to Stetson was that the, uh, the opportunity for dialogue, the opportunity for multicultural exchange was very real. And I, and I also sensed quite needed. Uh, uh, so uh, that was a, an attraction to me for our community. How do you pull that off? Well, if you can point to me, uh, point me to an institution that is doing this exceptionally well, I'd be really, really grateful. Uh, because I think this is a struggle that is across all of higher education. There are certainly pockets of excellent programs, pockets of excellent uh, dialogue and pockets of excellent forward-moving progressive kinds of initiatives, but this is something that isn't where you do it once and then you're done, right? This is continuous. Uh, so I think it's important for communities to do a productive interrogation of its own history, uh, not with the uh, intent of interrogating the history for, for, that, for that purpose only, but rather to move us forward. Um, so certainly our alums have experienced uh, things on campus that may not have been uh, consistent with our stated values. Well, let's, let's confront that. Let's, let's, let's interrogate that. How do we move ourselves forward? So I think a big part of this puzzle is frankly having the difficult conversations uh, where people can really be open and honest and candid about what their lived experience is on a campus so that we can eliminate those barriers to their, uh, to their education. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I went to uh, University of Florida, just, you know, north up, up the road. And it is difficult sometimes when you you're, you have students coming from, I came from South Florida, and you're coming from all different backgrounds, and you have everyone on campus together. But I agree with you, starting with the difficult conversations and confronting it head on and, 
creating an environment where um, students and faculty and staff can have that community and not be afraid to speak up and create that sense of we're all in it together. I, I, I definitely agree that that's a, a brilliant I'd also um, like to add it. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I just wanted to no, add, no, add no. an element. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I wanted yeah. to add an element, which I think has been fascinating in, in this context of thinking about diversity and inclusion, has been the role that social media uh, plays. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that you're seeing a lot of our uh, our folks cho choosing to uh, dialogue on social media about those lived mm -hmm. experiences. I mm -hmm. think that's potentially very valuable uh, uh, to, to do that, but it also can be quite uh, limiting in terms of mm -hmm. uh, its ability to, to move us forward. So mm -hmm. what I would like to do is create the spaces on campus with faculty, mm -hmm. with staff, with members of our local community where we can have real conversations uh, in person. Uh, that's been limited at this moment uh, to do that uh, given the pandemic. But um, so I do think social media plays a very interesting role. I mean, I think for example, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of these incidents around the country are now, uh, you know, captured on video, mm -hmm. um, uh, captured with, uh, you know, in a sort of an historical archive that you simply cannot deny um, mm -hmm. because it's right mm -hmm. in front of your face and you see it. Um, sure. I think that's a real big factor as we try to move ourselves forward uh, that, you know, we use social media platforms and other platforms judiciously. Uh, I often find that uh, we take a couple steps backwards when we have some things that are said or things that are done under the cowardice of anonymity uh, hmm. that that sets us back. Uh, okay. What I mean by that is, you know, there can be often be a, uh, things that are either racist or sexist or misogynistic that are done under the cowardice of, of anonymity. And it's so hard for institutions of higher education to respond in real time to those when, in fact, those incidents occur under the cowardice of anonymity. For sure. Thank you for that. Mm, that's a good point. Mm. That's a good point. Also, also, social media has a uh, knack for bringing trolls with it. And so anybody Correct. that's looking to positively affect change is going to take some, uh, maybe not so much on LinkedIn, Liz, because you are really active on LinkedIn and do a great job of, of pushing the message board on, on uh, oh, yeah. social change and diversity. But Twitter and, you know, those places, they really bring a lot of uh, junk uh, I want to use as uh, the best vocabulary I can today, uh, but uh, a lot of junk uh, with with it, and uh, that can be challenging and, and take us backwards. When you uh, maybe we need to know what those issues are too, and how people really feel to to make that change. So that's an interesting part of it as well. Exactly, exactly, and I certainly applaud the activism around these issues. I think we also have a responsibility as educators. Uh, to work with our students collaboratively, uh, with faculty, with members of our staff, for productive activism. Uh, there are, there are uh, good methods and there are strong methods and there's ways we can move our agendas forward um, and build community at the same time. Uh, so I'm not the least bit afraid of us talking about how do we teach effective activism. Uh, we are built, uh, our institutions are built with uh, value statements and mission statements and we need to abide by those. And the way we best way we can do that is through action. So you talked, uh, before we got started, uh, we talked a little bit off the air, if you will, and uh, you um, expressed your deep 
passion for transparency. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and as a part of your leadership philosophy, why transparency is so important to you and how you implement transparency now as your, uh, by the way, congratulations, we never said on your, your new role, uh, <laughs> but you. how you have uh, uh, how you have um, uh, implemented transparency, how you plan to uh, as you move forward. Well, I think the word transparency is is important. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a word that's hot right now uh, in higher education circles. And what I think it really is about is trust. Uh, people, uh, I think, are smart and they are proactive and they're intelligent. And if they're given the information, in particular, understand who made that decision and why, uh, transparency about where uh, resources are allocated and why, you build trust, right? Because I think everyone recognizes that there are a limited amount of resources. There are difficult decisions that have to be made. But if you can be honest and open and candid, I think you're going to build trust between administration and faculty, between administration and students, uh, the administration and alums. Uh, local government agencies, et cetera. So uh, I view transparency as important to building trust. How do you pull that off? I think that you have to also, as a leader, uh, again, be willing to listen and be willing to be honest about why you made a particular decision. And frankly, raising your hand and say, I didn't get that one right. <laughs> In other words, what I'm suggesting right. is I think good leadership also involves uh, allowing yourself to have some vulnerability. Uh, none of us are perfect in this work. Uh, we all have the best of intentions, but we make mistakes here and there. And I think communities, uh, that transparency about that, I think is, is highly valued uh, in a community. If you can say, you know, I, I made this decision at this time for this reason, and I was wrong. Uh, and I think that helps build trust, helps build camaraderie, and helps build a community because it's honest. Mm. Well, you know, I'm going to come around to the to the point here, and this this is a key piece of of uh, what I want to ask you, uh, because the fascinating part about having you on this podcast is that you you've just walked into this role in, in these challenging times, and so gaining trust, um, both as uh, even though you were embedded maybe before you you officially stepped into the role, gaining trust of of the leadership team uh, of the students is a monumental task and so important to. Uh, your presidency and a successful presidency, particularly among health concerns and contact tracing and, and all of those things that, that we have to do now, masks, and every decision you make uh, has implications, right? I think that's a part of, of being a higher education administrator, particularly now. Um, and so the, the, the other fascinating part is that you come in during a time where uh, colleges in general are going to, are or going to uh, maybe struggle a little bit financially as people decide not to come to school, um, maybe struggling to pay like they used to because of job loss. And, and there's a number of factors in, that, in those respects. And so I'm setting you up here for the question. Um, I read online, and I'm assuming this is uh, uh, this is uh, okay for me to say here. And if not, we can always edit it out. But um, <laughs> I, thought, uh, I read online that um, that from day one, uh, you voluntarily took a 15% um, salary reduction. Correct. And uh, 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 I found that to be a profound uh, piece uh, of information to read. Uh, particularly walking into a new presidency, moving yourself and eventually your family, which at the time when I read that, I didn't know your family wasn't there. So there's right. uh, uh, imp lifestyle implications that you have going on right now. And then to take that reduction amidst this time, given the risk, says a lot about you and your character and commitment. 
so, um, well, well done. Uh, but second of all, uh, tell me how all of that wraps together in terms of transparency, building trust, and, and maybe sacrificing uh, personally to set the stage for the future uh, amidst uh, financial concerns. Sure. Uh, thank you uh, for the question. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's important for when uh, you have financial challenges that the leadership, which are typically uh, better compensated than others, uh, lead the way. I think it's just absolutely critical that you lead the way uh, in the reductions that might be necessary. Again, all with the intent of trying to make it possible for our students to continue through uh, and have deep engagement with faculty and make uh, advances toward their degree. So thank you for, for mentioning that. Uh, it wasn't a hard decision for me at all. It was a rather obvious one to make, uh, given the financial uh, landscape that many higher education institutions are confronting. I mean, here at Stetson University, we are uh, almost entirely uh, tuition and room and board uh, dependent. Uh, we do have a, an endowment of $250 million, which is uh, nothing uh, uh, to be ashamed about. That's a, a very helpful uh, endowment, but we uh, certainly have rules about how much we can draw from that endowment because we want that endowment to serve generations to come of Stetson students. So to your question, I think it's critical that senior leadership uh, take the lead when difficult decisions have to be made. I also think there's some small symbolic things that leaders can do that can uh, build a teamwork. Uh, again, I've only been here for a few weeks, but uh, one of the first things I did was I pulled out my, my parking sign, which was said reserved for the president 24 seven. Uh, I didn't understand why I had a reserved parking spot uh, when my house is across the street. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, it's a small symbolic gesture, but I must say that I, I think that makes a difference. I think people are, oh, he understands, uh, he's taking some tangible steps uh, to try to uh, eliminate whatever real or perceived barriers there might be between those that are at the senior level of an institution and those that are um, um, serving the institution in a different capacity. So uh, one of the things we're going to do is pitch a tent outside the president's home uh, during this time of COVID-19 because I so eagerly want to meet uh, folks other than just virtually and we're going to do this in a safe and responsible way, in a physically distant way. We're going to be outdoors. Uh, and I think those little gestures uh, turn out to uh, yield big, big dividends in terms of, again, building trust, building uh, transparency and openness, and building community. So I thank you for asking me the question. Uh, these were not hard decisions to make. I think they're, um, they're easy ones to make, uh, but I also think they're quite important. Agreed. And Liz, I'll kick it to you and just want to also mention as, as a part of this, um, uh, there was also a, a, a delay or stay in uh, financial responsibility for the students and that they their balances, if you will, and in, in coming current on the balances was put off, it looks like, until November 15th, uh, right. if I'm not mistaken. So it gives uh, a student a chance to um, either return to college or go online. And if they want to continue with Stetson, uh, perhaps they had family that uh, had a job loss. It gives people time to get their feet under them before they have to, to uh, complete the responsibility. And so kudos to you for, for passing on, uh, you know, the passing the responsibility into the future for, for students because of, they're, they're going to be the most affected, right? Uh, one way or another, we're all dealing with the ideas of gap years and commitment and what's going to happen. And so anything that you can do for students is a, is a huge win. So uh, well done, yeah. sir. Well, thank you very much. And, and again, the mantra I've been doing in the early days here is that, you know, kindness 
needs to get as contagious as the virus. That's been kind of my tagline, if you will. Uh, I like and I really, I, I really believe that's true. Um, and I was building on some, when I was first introduced to the Stetson community, I concluded with a drawing from Mr. Rogers, our wonderful childhood educator, uh, who uh, is well known to have said that, uh, you know, the, ulti- the ultimate path to success is to be kind. Um, and I, and I, I certainly try to abide by that philosophy. And I think in these trying times, we must practice kindness. Uh, we must practice humility. Uh, we must practice empathy. Uh, and to whatever extent possible, the things we can do to make things more clear for this generation of students. I mean, they've been they've been uh, uh, dealt a hand here that I don't think anyone anticipated. Uh, and you pointed to that. Some of that is going to be financial challenge to complete their education, et cetera. Uh, our board of trustees also generously approved a $1,500 one-time COVID uh, grant uh, to our stu- returning students uh, so that they would have um, some ability to return. Um, it's never enough, certainly, uh, given the high cost of higher education, but that coupled with our commitment to financial aid and, again, having a disposition of kindness, empathy, uh, and humanity, I think will go a long way to keeping our students engaged with us. Um, so as a new leader, I think uh, in addition to the decisions one makes, uh, the disposition that one brings to the work is vitally important. And uh, I'm really trying to stay true to what I um, have promised the Stetson community was that, you know, kindness is not only mat- kindness not only matters. Uh, it enables us to listen, to engage with others unlike ourselves, and to consider paths we can forge together to make our community stronger. Um, I'm going to try to get as much mileage out of that disposition as possible because I think it's the right thing to do. You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hey guys, this is Joe, and I just want to remind you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. On the website, you're going to find all of our past episodes that we've done with some of the top leaders in higher education today, talking about innovations, ideas, and issues facing our industry today, finding out what may happen in the future, what higher ed needs to look like moving forward. So again, check out www.edupexperience.com. Now, let's get back to the action. Absolutely. I was actually just reading, as you were saying that, I was reading that article where um, you talked about that. And and I agree with you that if you operate from that frame, a lot of the, probably a lot of the civil unrest and a lot of the conflict that we have, whether it's political, whether it's racial, whether it's about people's rights to, you know, love who they want or whatever the case may be, maybe we wouldn't have um, so many um, uh, conflicts. But just to, I guess, continue in the frame of operating in that way, your campus is known as um, intimate, you know, from living in Florida, you know, we have a lot of huge schools. And then I think Stetson always has had uh, more of a reputation of being a school that's small, intimate, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the face-to-face in terms of the interactions that you're going to have and that one-on-one and the small class sizes and and things of that nature. How are you navigating that in in the age of COVID-19 with everything that's going on? What are some of the things that you're planning or how are you hoping to move forward and make sure that you don't lose those um, those elements of connection with the students while still maintaining their safety. Right. 
Uh, first, thank you for your uh, description of Stetson. I think that's precisely right. I think our place in the market is to provide you know, intellectual intimacy. Uh, the residential living components of our uh, enterprise are a big part of our students' learning here on campus. Uh, the close faculty-student uh, collaborations that take place around pressing global problems, whether it be climate change or uh, hunger or infectious disease, whatever it may be, uh, Stetson's approach has always been to try to make that as intellectually intimate as possible. In addition, our students, and one of the big attractions for me was our students are so committed to doing what we call community-based learning. You know, they're in and out of the classroom a great deal trying to apply what it is they're learning in the classroom in real communities. So I'll be straight up that, that the COVID-19 has thrown a tremendous curveball at us uh, in terms of, frankly, what we're good at, which is that intellectual intimacy and that close engagement, the smaller class size, et cetera. Having said that, uh, and we've had many, many, many conversations about this, you know, we had to go uh, virtual uh, uh, in, in the spring before I became the president. And I was really quite impressed with how creative and thoughtful and innovative our faculty were in engaging our students in their coursework uh, remotely. Certainly, as would be the case in any uh, technological advanced uh, uh, era, there are technological challenges that, uh, we, you know, that, that come into play. Uh, we just had a webinar yesterday where uh, we had uh, 900 people want to hear my opening remarks to the community, and you know, we ran into some bandwidth issues. So what do we do? Well, we learn from that, and we break into smaller groups. Uh, our faculty were incredibly responsive, I think, to, to the environment that they, uh, they confronted unexpectedly, and they have worked all summer. This is typically a time when faculty are working uh, on their research projects, getting a much-needed breather with their families, et cetera, and they have worked so diligently to figure out ways in which we can preserve the very best of a sets in education should we have to go virtual. Um, you know, we have chosen to go with a hybrid format where we do anticipate, assuming the pandemic uh, cooperates, uh, with uh, a number of our students on campus in residence, uh, with single residents. That's one of the mitigation uh, efforts we've made is that uh, no more doubles, no more triples this year, uh, single rooms only, uh, with, and also giving any student that is either international or can't, for whatever reason, make it to campus because of health concerns or have an immunosuppression of some sort or underlying condition, that they'd also be able to engage in our courses uh, uh, virtually. So we've invested in technology, uh, we've invested in faculty development uh, in really fast order uh, in order to preserve the very best of a Stetson education. Uh, because again, as you rightly pointed out, that has been our niche since 1883, has been to provide an intellectually intimate and productive environment and a residential environment for our students. So we've been, in cha we've been challenged in ways we hadn't anticipated, but uh, I, like, I love to describe Stetson as, as scrappy, uh, resilient uh, and innovative, and uh, and I certainly have seen that firsthand in my first uh, period of time here with our community. Our faculty care deeply not only about their discipline, but also about the craft of teaching, and they love Stetson because of that type of education that we afford. So despite the challenges, we're going to plow through. Gotcha. And I think another thing about Stetson that I think sets you guys apart is here in Florida, you know, so many huge public schools, you know, I have, I went to University of Florida, you have Florida State, you have Florida A&M, um, you have private University of Miami down here in Miami, so you, you have a, a bunch of big schools, but then you guys are, are small and intimate, you guys are also private, um, which is different, 
speak to me a little bit about some of your research on fiscal policy and, and you know, I guess the, the, the dichotomy is that we have a lot of those huge public schools. I mean, you guys are smaller and private, and obviously a private school is going to be more expensive than going to a public school. And, and now a lot of, um, as we go into the, a, to the fall term, a lot of the questions um, in terms of higher education are about return on investment, about student debt, about the cost of education. Can you tell me a little bit more about your research and, and how we navigate that? as higher education yeah. professionals? Like, what, what are we telling our students? What are we telling our parents? And, and what are we saying to the country in terms of how we can be good carekeeper, good, um, I guess, gatekeepers, or not even gatekeepers, really caretakers of that mm -hmm. tuition dollar? And how can we make sure students are getting a return on investment? And, and how can we make sure that, um, you know, we, we tackle this problem of the rising debt in our country as far as student loans? Like, what should we do about that? Right. Uh, first, the, the, the majority of my research uh, in my career as an education faculty member and even in higher education to some extent has been focused mostly on the K-12 system. It's only been over the last four or five years that I've been able to uh, transition my research and my, my scholarly work into the uh, higher education realm. Uh, I have a soon-to-be-released volume on uh, fiscal policy in higher education to be coming out, co-edited with Jennifer King Rice at the University of Maryland nice. um, mm -hmm. coming out uh, this fall. Um, but I, I did want to confess that this is a, a relatively new terrain for me in terms of my own That's research. Okay. Uh, the bulk of my research historically has been in issues of teacher recruitment and retention and fiscal policy, in particular in urban schools and the K-12 environment, trying to promote notions of uh, equality of educational opportunity and the like. Uh, this has been a fascinating transition, and, um, and I look forward to continuing in that, given my role here at Stetson. Um, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, all of higher education is under great scrutiny, uh, in part because of the increasing and escalating costs of higher education. Uh, the return on investment questions are very, very real. And my own take on that is that we need to provide an education that is going to be absolutely rooted in a broad liberal arts education. At the same time, we should not shy away from applying those uh, understandings and that learning into real-world contexts. So in some ways, I might be repeating myself from earlier in the podcast, but you know, giving our students that are working in a biology classroom the opportunity to apply what it is they're learning uh, in providing service to a local community agency. Uh, for our students in education that are learning how to become teachers, uh, doing extensive field work in the community and applying is what they're learning in the classroom in real-world settings. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we have to be laser focused on giving our students skills of critical thinking, uh, of being able to work across differences, uh, being able to communicate effectively, uh, being able to use technology effectively. These are all the tools that our industries are requiring of our graduates. And I don't think we are at all sacrificing our rich history in the liberal arts uh, to do that, uh, to apply those skills in real world settings. Again, it, it's great opportunity there for faculty-student collaboration, action research projects. Um, you know, what are the needs in the local community here in Deland that need study, that need uh, uh, some assistance to figure out a particular pressing problem? That is exciting work. I mean, I was certainly motivated by the work of, of a very famous philosopher of education, uh, John Dewey, uh, who felt so strongly that experience plus reflection equals growth. Um, I'd like to take that even further. And I would like to say that reflection ought to also include what students are learning in their disciplines. I think that takes it yet to another level in terms of the depth of learning and the value of an education. 
listen, this group of graduates is likely to change their jobs five, six, maybe even seven times over the course of their career. So it's really important that they be able to critically think, uh, to be able to understand data and be able to analyze data uh, in a rapidly changing global marketplace. And I think Stetson is incredibly well situated to be able to promote that kind of education uh, for our 4,200 students. Uh, so back to our smallness, you know, we have 4,200 students, you know, uh, and four schools. We've got a college of law, we've got a school of music, we've got a school of business. We certainly have the arts and sciences undergraduate here at Stetson. So, uh, you know, we have always uh, balanced the notions of the liberal arts with vocation. And so another thing that drew me here was, in fact, that wonderful balancing act that I think Stetson has achieved over the years. Dr. Walker, do you, you really, do you, oh, I'm sorry, Joe, I just, I just have this one last question before no, no, go. I let Dr. Rokey off the hook. But do you think, because I think what you said as far as the K-12 and, and, and confessing that your, your focus is on that, I think it really informs, though, us in higher ed. Because I think there's a lot of talk about inequity and people, I think, in the general public don't seem to be really aware of funding and how that works and how sometimes that can create an imbalance and inequity. And sometimes we don't even see those students. We'll never see them because perhaps yeah. that's the problem is that we don't have the, that, that which you were talking about with the, the fiscal policy and practice. People don't really understand how that works and how that informs us as higher education and recruiting these students, how sometimes there's such an imbalance that, you know, we, we don't even know or really understand, maybe even as parents or as educators ourselves, yeah. how that's created in the K-12 setting. What have you found about that? Because it really informs yes. what we're talking about, in, in equity and racism and um, systemic racism and um, education as a great equalizer. Sometimes I, I tell Joe, because Joe's always like, education. I'm just like, but some of these students will, they, they're, they're kind of like behind the starting line and not to make fun because obviously we, we work in higher education and we know that education is an equalizer. But for some students, it can't be an equalizer if maybe they come from an underfunded district where, you know, they're, they're basically um, from day one. They, they don't have the ability to have the same um, opportunity as somebody that a student goes to school in a better funded district, right? Uh, we're on the same page on this. I, I could not agree with you more. And many folks are talking about the K through 16 sort of continuum. I might even go even further back, you know, even the pre-K continuum. And, you know, oh, there's yeah. others that have argued you want to fix the achievement gap. But one way is to think about prenatal care. Uh, you know, this hall is all interconnected. Oh, all, Elvin, Elvin would be all over this one because he, he, you know, he talks about that all the time, <laughs> prenatal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's, it's all interconnected. And I do think there's an opportunity here for, for uh, K-12 collaboration with higher education. And, and you've given me an opportunity to do a self-serving sort of description of the thing <laughs> I'm going to miss most about Vassar uh, and the work that we did there. When I arrived there in 1998, it was clear to me that our students were looking for, our students in education were looking for more ample field experience uh, in the community. Uh, we reside in, in Poughkeepsie, uh, New York, which is just a four square mile city that has the typical challenges you might anticipate uh, of, a, of an urban underfunded environment. And so we started the Vassar College Urban Education Initiative. Uh, I got a couple of small grants, uh, started very humbly uh, in trying to build greater partnership with Vassar, uh, which had been viewed by many in the community as, as uh, you know, the whole ivory tower syndrome of a gated community, et cetera. And this small part that we did was literally trying to break down fences between our local community and Vassar. So Vassar College Urban Education Initiative now has celebrated its 17th anniversary. We wow. just received a substantial gift to uh, allow this to occur for another, at least another 10 years. 
And it's the thing I miss the most of my work at Vassar because we built those relationships with a lot of sweat and tears. And I think the impact was quite considerable. And our capstone program actually involved uh, pairing Vassar faculty with local area high school teachers to team teach courses to rising juniors from our community, most of them first-generation college students. They reside on campus for two weeks. They get an opportunity what it's uh, to look like and what it feels like uh, to be on a college campus. And we're just so proud of, of that work. And I'm so delighted that that work continues uh, despite my departure from Vassar. And it's in very, very good hands, but you're absolutely correct. We need to be thinking about our educational system holistically and not one sure. particular finite grade level. And so I am hopeful that uh, we can do similar kinds of things here at Stetson. Um, mm. And they already have a great track record in terms of working with local area school systems, uh, working with the uh, uh, city council, uh, I'll give you one simple example. Uh, Stetson faculty and students worked closely with, with the city of Deland to have a mask ordinance, and it passed. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that just excites me. I mean, that excites me that there's that trust that's already there. So we're building from, a, from a, a position of strength with a very strong foundation where trust has been built. Uh, in fact, I think it's a little further along even than some of the prior places where I've worked, and I'm so excited about that. Awesome. Well, Joe, you talked about that. We've ta- and we've talked about that. I'm so glad that you, you brought this up because we talked about the idea of admissions and, and several of our guests have been talking about the idea that admissions doesn't start like at their senior year or when we're scrambling around. We need to build these community partnerships so that there is that, like you said, that K through 16, so that we're not just starting senior year when they're just thinking about applying to college. That's when they first know about the colleges in their uh, backyard. Right. So. Yeah, for sure. Joe? If you don't mind, I'd like to add also, we're very careful about the language you use. This is not quote unquote service learning. <laughs> this is yeah. community-based partnership, Absolutely. right? Uh, in other yeah, words, uh, sure. we are learn. we right. meaning higher education is learning as much from our community Absolutely. and they are, and, and they are giving us such rich curricular opportunities that this is a community-based partnership. Uh, sure. I, I, and, I, and I, I'm not at all to belittle the importance of, of quote-unquote service learning, but I think the language we use is actually kind of important. Yeah, definitely. A language is very important. And, you know, uh, uh, to, to the point of what you guys are saying, you know, we are in the land of, of opportunity. You know, from, from mm-hmm. adversity comes opportunity. We And Liz, you and I have talked a lot about this. We're mm-hmm. in really the perfect storm of, of, yeah. uh, of adversity. We have health concerns. Um, how many millions of Americans now have financial concerns because of the sure. health concerns and, and close building, uh, close uh, businesses, uh, and then we have uh, social concerns that mm-hmm. um, have always been there, but but have come to the forefront uh, maybe because of uh, of a myriad of other factors that that mm-hmm. amplified those concerns. And so, uh, you know, uh, Chris, you're taking on a presidency at a very unique time of uh, of education of, of societal uh, state, present state, if you will. But I think that, and, and I, I'm sure you agree, or else you wouldn't have taken on a presidency at this time, that there's a tremendous opportunity for, uh, for higher education to, to move forward and help solve, contribute, um, and be a part of, of moving people beyond these issues into the future. Is that do you believe that's true? I mean, you know, do you believe that the that the opportunity for us to get people back to work, to you know, to be part of the solution, getting us through these health concerns and and uh, 
you know, uh, contributing to society is, is a big part of, of where we're headed for edu- higher education? I, I absolutely do. And, and uh, I very much appreciate what you said there, because I, I, I do believe that adversity uh, not only uh, builds character, it reveals it. Uh, so you see in times of crisis, uh, folks step up in pretty extraordinary ways. Um, I also don't want to be um, through rose-colored glasses here viewing our current context because there's a good deal of fatigue that has uh, taken place, whether it be on the racial front, uh, on battling COVID, et cetera. And so one of the things I'm really trying to balance out in my early days here is I do think the opportunity to also laugh and uh, and, and relax together uh, is very therapeutic for a community. Um, so uh, I, I do think that's important. Um, but you're absolutely correct. The learning opportunities that are being presented right now are so incredibly abundant um, that higher education does have an opportunity to capitalize on this moment. Uh, because I, as I indicated earlier, I can ima- not imagine being in a, in a better context to tackle some of these issues than to be in higher education. Uh, again, smart, insightful, dedicated folks who have a lived experience that can be shared and can move us forward. Um, you know, if you'll indulge me for a second, one of the things I've been doing is reading at night uh, some more and more about Stetson, reading vor- voraciously. And I've just uh, finished uh, the memoir of a prior president uh, from Stetson. His name was Pope Duncan. And if you'll just uh, bear with me for a second, I have one paragraph I want to read to you, and I'm I'm chuckling about it because uh, you'll know why. Uh, He writes, and he was president in the late 70s and uh, through to the late 80s, and he writes, I have frequently made the statement that any president is going to have one or more crises each year that will absorb his or her time for days and even weeks. It may not be a crisis that shakes the very foundation of the institution, but it is one for the president that becomes a major time consumer and wrings out his or her energy. I have added that if you do not have that crisis in the fall, you'd better be prepared for it's going to come before the school year is out. I'm chuckling because the crises that he ends up describing later in the later pages, uh, one was uh, some conflicts with the Baptist Convention. Stetson was founded as a, as a Baptist institution, uh, and they got some funding from the Baptist Convention. So that was one challenge. And the other was a personnel matter uh, in physical plant. So I sort of chuckle because the, the, the set of crises that we're confronting at this moment uh, could <laughs> are a little bit bigger. Just a little bit bigger than that. And again, I just keep coming back to the importance of disposition. If our community can maintain the disposition of optimism, of moving forward together collaboratively, honestly, uh, transparently, uh, we're going to have a better outcome than if we don't practice those things moving forward. So thank you for indulging me. I've, I've been, I got a real <laughs> kick out of, that, uh, out of that memoir, and he was a very successful president. And I know that brighter days lie ahead. I absolutely know they lie ahead, but they only will lie ahead if we work together. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, uh, as we wrap up this episode, is there anything else that we missed? Anything else that you'd like to say about Stetson University as you enter your uh, your uh, hopefully long and prosperous tenure uh, as president? <laughs> Uh, Thank you. You're giving me an opportunity to promote promote this place that I have quickly come to love. It is just an extraordinary place to work. I have zero, zero regrets of having taken on this role, uh, even uh, despite our context. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic about our future. Uh, I'm optimistic about our present, uh, despite our challenges. So I'm really grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to talk about Stetson uh, and to talk about my experiences. And um, stay tuned, because I think great things are going to come out of this university. Well, there you have it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chris Rolke, president, newly 
uh, uh, crowned, if you will, president of Stephen University in a very rough, rough time. Uh, what makes this, and we said at the beginning, what makes this uh, so fascinating is entering uh, a presidency uh, during our challenging times. All the respect to you, uh, uh, Dr. Chris, and uh, we met, wish you, Liz and I, wish you much mm-hmm. success, uh, and we will be staying in touch. I thank you so very, very much, and I please uh, hope you, your families and you and your loved ones stay safe and well. All right, everyone. Uh, there it is, Dr. Chris Rolke, president of Stetson University. Uh, fascinating, great conversation, Liz. Uh, what did you think about Dr. Chris? I really liked him, and you know what? I didn't realize that his um, his research in the fiscal policy in education, I didn't realize it was in K through 12. I just assumed that it was in higher ed. So I actually thought it was interesting that he talked about the the K through 12 and how that it, I feel like, and I, and I was glad we had a chance to discuss it. It does inform what we do in higher ed. Sometimes we kind of put ourselves in a bubble and he talks about the idea of the K through 16. We tend to put ourselves in a bubble and say, okay, we're higher ed, they're K through 12. And we're really all one. I mean, we have to really start thinking in terms of more of an inclusive. Like he said, even, I was like, Elvin would have loved this for prenatal. We got to start from the womb. He would have <laughs> like, right. Yeah, he would have jumped all over that one. I mean, he talks about that all the time as far as reading in the womb. But I think that's the problem sometimes with education. We tend to compartmentalize. There's prenatal. There's, you know, pre-K. There's K through 12. And everyone's in their own little bubble. And if we could look at it as a continuum, we talk about lifelong learning as well, you know, here. So why not think about it from birth to whenever you feel that you're done? And most people will say, hey, you, you're supposed to keep active. Even after you retire, right. you should always be learning because it, it helps you be better as a person and feel healthier and feel more invigorated. So I think that's, that's an interesting conversation as well. What about you? What did you think about him? I liked when he's there are two things that he said. Obviously, the kindness kindness is contagious as the virus. I, that's, I love uh, that. You know, if, if he didn't trademark it, he should. Um, <laughs> he better. True. Yeah, he better. Um, and then you know he said that uh, he believed Vassar was scrappy, resilient, and innovative. Yeah. Those are two of the things I wrote down. And, and you know, Liz and everybody we have had on this podcast, someone along the way, and uh, who was the guest that say he didn't want to uh, he didn't want to be all doom and gloom? I can't remember who that was. Oh, that was Chad. So, Chad Williamson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chad, which will be coming by the time uh, it'll be coming out soon. But uh, you know, there has been a doom and gloom piece to to higher ed, and that there's going to be a number of institutions that fail, and the ones yeah. that survive are going to be scrappy, resilient, and in, <laughs> excuse me, and innovative. Agreed. And I think that says it all because we're going to have to work extra hard to survive. Um, and, you know, him taking a 15% uh, salary decrease from wow. the first day he starts is pretty incredible yeah. uh, way to get started. So, um, yeah. again, he literally another, put his money, he put his money where his mouth is, like literally, right? Literally. <laughs> uh, well, there you have it, ladies and gents. Another amazing episode of the Yet Up Experience. We appreciate your support. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And uh, otherwise, Liz will tag you on LinkedIn and remind you to do so. Right, Liz? (laughs) That's right. I sure will. (laughs) All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And... 
If you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.